Father in heaven, we want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to hear you speak to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for such a wonderful message like the message of the sanctuary. We pray that you will please uh, give us understanding. Forgive us, we ask of our sins, Lord, and help our minds to be connected with heaven so that we can understand the things that you share with us, most importantly, apply it in our lives so that we can effectively share it with others. I pray that you will please send your Holy Spirit that he may come and be our teacher. And may he open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things from your word. This is our prayer we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, you're going to find that the reason why I wanted you to have Bibles in hand is because as I ask you questions, there's one of two ways you can answer a question. You can either answer it according to what you think or you can answer it according to what God says. Which one do you think is more important? All right. So we're on the same page. So therefore, we want to do our best to try to let God speak to us. All right. Um, question. Did at any point in time in history, did mankind have a face to face communion with God? You say yes. OK. Now you say yes. That means that you said it like you know it. So that means you have a scripture for it. What scripture do we get in the Bible that shows that mankind had a face-to-face communion with God? What, what Bible verse would you use to help substantiate that? Say again. All right, Genesis 2. So let's go to Genesis 2. We're searching together. We're all studying together. So let's take a look at this. Genesis chapter 2. Do you have a specific verse? No specific verse. You going to make me study? I mean, you know. So what, what, what we have to do is if we're going to direct us somewhere in the scripture, we've got to find a specific scripture. Because I could be searching all through Genesis 2, all the way up to verse 25 and never see it. All right, so where would we find somewhere in the Bible where it shows that mankind at some point in time had to have face communion with God? Since we believe it. Is there anybody who doesn't believe that? Anyone who says, I do not believe that mankind had face-to-face communion with God? Okay, so we all believe it. How many of us are not sure? All right, one hand. So that means the rest of you are sure. Where is your burden of proof? Where would you go in the Bible to help us find where mankind had a face-to-face communion? Now, wait a minute. I think my friend here had his hand up first, so let me acknowledge him, and then if he doesn't have it, then you can go ahead. Okay, so I'm looking you in your face and I say, today, if you partake of this tree, you shall surely die. And if you don't, you shall not surely die. Face to face, right? All right. Now, if I say, today, if you partake of this tree, you shall surely die. But if you don't take partake of this tree, you shall not surely die. Did I still make the same communication with you? Yeah. Were we face to face? No. So that, does that verse prove that God was talking face to face and maybe he wasn't talking with his back turned or looking someplace else? All right. Now, the only reason why I'm asking, because there is a verse that does help us. So, you know, I'm just helping us all search it out. Now, my friend in the back, his hand. Oh, you did. You give up. You didn't want to do it anymore. All right. Now people are getting excited. OK, good. Um, let's see. OK, my friend here. All right. Exodus 33, 11. Let's take a look at that. What does it say there? All right. Now, I want you to notice this. okay? so my friend just said here that the Lord spoke to Moses. How face to face. face, Right now. I want you to actually, I think that's a very good verse. I think that's a very good verse. What do you say? The Bible says that God spoke to Moses face to face. So did God have face to face communion with man? Yes. Now, I'm going to actually show you that that's actually not the best verse. Can I tell you why? Go to Numbers chapter 12. Now, if you look at Numbers chapter 12, it kind of clarifies that verse that we just looked at where it talks about face to face. I want you to see how it says more so in Numbers chapter 12. Let's see how God actually spoke to Moses. And 
I want you to sit down and think about this. You're doing a Bible study with somebody. You're trying to prove that mankind had face-to-face communion with God, and you're breaking it down. And as far as you're concerned, you're feeling good. You're saying, yeah, look, I just showed him. See, face-to-face, the Bible just said so. So you're feeling real strong, right? Like you just proved your point. But then all of a sudden, let's say that person's a little studious, and they say, well, it's not really that God spoke to Moses face-to-face, because notice what Numbers 12 says to kind of clarify it. And they go to Numbers chapter 12, and look at what it says in verses 7 and 8. And I'm going to ask you to read it since you read uh, the face-to-face point. Go ahead. What does it say? All right. Now, what version are you reading from? New King James. James. Now, where do you live? Tennessee. Tennessee. Now, I want you to think about this. My friend is reading from a New King James Bible, but he lives in Tennessee. Tennessee is part of what's known as the Bible Belt in the South. I live in Georgia, so I know also this area. Now, in the Bible Belt, you're going to find that people typically like to use King James versions. Believe it or not, seriously, it, like if you're talking like Southern Baptists and so on and so forth, they don't even call it King James. They call it the Blessed King James. <laughs> now, with that being said, you know, if they were reading from the King James version, they'd say, uh, your version says face to face. But my version says in Numbers 12, verse eight, with him will I speak mouth to mouth. So therefore, it's God's voice to his voice. In other words, God speaks to Moses, but he's not necessarily in Moses's face. Moses speaks back to God and God is hearing Moses' voice, but they're not necessarily looking at each other. In the other verse, it says face to face, which is interesting because in Exodus 33, it says face to face. But then in Numbers 12, it actually says mouth to mouth. So somebody may say argument. That's not gelling voice to voice. That doesn't necessarily mean face to face. Like I just did with my friend. I turned my back and I was going ahead and talking to him and he still heard my voice and I heard his, but we weren't face to face. That's just if somebody was doing that. Now, let me give you one that I think is irrefutable. Oh, well, hold on. I think we may have it. Genesis 32, 30. Let me give you one that's even stronger. Who had Isaiah? Nobody had Isaiah. Are you kidding me? You guys didn't have Isaiah. Do you know Isaiah is one of the clearest texts in the Bible that shows that mankind actually had face to face communion with God? Want to know how? Go to Isaiah 59. Who said that? You got it. Since you got it, you read it. Now watch this. Isaiah 59. Look at verses 1 to 2. Here's one of the clearest examples in the Bible to show mankind had not mouth to mouth only, but actual face to face communion with God. Watch this. Isaiah 59. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And when my friend finds it, go ahead and read and put your preacher's voice on. All right. What do we find in the verse? Where we're dealing with face to face, we're dealing with the face to face question. What did we see in the verse? All right. So iniquities have separated between you and your God. But then it says your sins have caused him to do something to turn his face from you. That he will not hear you. So therefore, the Bible shows that before sin, what kind of communion did God have with man? Face to face. As a result of sin, what did God now do with his face? He turned his face from us. Are you following? So the Bible makes it clear that there was a time mankind had face to face communion with God. When was that time? Before sin. You got it. You got it. So God wants to restore the relationship. You think God really wants to talk to people through burning bushes? Do you really think, let me tell you something. I have been privileged, I repeat, I have been privileged to be married to my bride, Alexandra Lemon, for 15 years. When I travel to places like this to meet wonderful people like you, and my bride is not by my side, There's a side of me that feels broken or incomplete. And 
as much as I love talking to you all, hanging out with you all and spending time with you all. Guess what I'm looking forward to? That time when I can go back home and see my bride. Now, I do happen to have a cell phone and I do get to talk to her. And that's nice. Sometimes we text each other and she'll even send that little wink face thing when you know you're texting each other and you send that wink face. We'll, we'll text each other, send that little winky face. And, and that's our way of communicating with each other, you know. But you know what? As much as I'm touched by that text message, as much as I love even hearing her voice on the phone, there is nothing like being with the one you love face to face. Is that right? So as much as I love you, I'm counting down the days, the hours and the minutes when Sunday comes and I get on the plane and then I shoot on back to Georgia and I know that I'm going to go out those doors at the airport and I'm going to see that van pull up and I'm going to see my bride with her precious smile and see her face to face. Now, God loves to talk to you through burning bushes. God loves to talk to you through his human agents. God loves to talk to you even through the secret chambers of prayer. But there's a communion that Jesus is longing for. And that communion that Christ is longing for is when he can once again talk to his bride face to face. And there's only one thing that caused God to turn his face from us. What was it? So if we want to have a face to face reunion with God, what do we need to overcome? Isn't that sensible? That makes sense, doesn't it? If sin is what caused God to turn his face, then it's the removal of sin that brings back face to face. Make sense? That's absolutely sensible. So therefore, the plan of salvation is God's plan to show us how to get victory over what? Sin. Beautiful. Now, let's do this. Grab your Bible. What I'm going to do is I'm now going to ask you this question. Now that we understand the whole theme of the Bible is how God can restore his image in man. Man was made in God's image in Genesis 1:26. Have you ever met somebody and uh, you ever talked to maybe one of your friends or whatever and you asked, you, you ever told them that, don't you know you're made in God's image? You ever told a friend they're made in God's image or anything like that? You ever told somebody that, a friend, a family member, a relative? Hey, you're made in God's image. You ever told somebody that? You know, it's not totally true. No, it's not that you're a liar. You made a mistake. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? All right. In Genesis 1:26, was was sin in the world yet? No. So in Genesis 1:26, the Bible says, let us make man in what? Our image after our likeness. Right. Go to Genesis five. Look at what the Bible says in Genesis five. Let's watch this. So in the beginning, man was made in the image and likeness of God. That's a fact. Now, let's look at Genesis 5 and let's look at uh, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. Who can read that for us? All right, my friend, go ahead. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. Now, look at this. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. All right, so the Bible's very clear that mankind was made in the image of God. This is the account of Moses now as he's talking about Adam and Eve. But now I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 3. Tell me if you see a difference. Oh, you can go ahead and read. I'm sorry. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Did you notice anything? Did you see that? So if I meet a brother or sister on the street and I say, hey, don't you know you are in God's image? Is that true? They're actually in the image of Adam and Eve. So now we have to help them realize that God wants to do something in their life. What do you think God wants to do? He wants to restore his image in his people. That's what he wants to do. But. If the people are going to be restored back into the original image, what do they have to get rid of? Sin. They got to overcome that thing because that's the thing that messed it all up. Sin. Right. All right. Well, did God have a plan to show mankind how he's going to take care of this sin problem? What was that plan? All right. It was the sanctuary. Now, if I had time. If any of you visit our booth at number 351, 
there is a series on there called The Gospel Through the Sanctuary. And we did that at the Florida Youth Initiative where we were with a lot of young people. So what we did was we we ran several classes showing individuals how the sanctuary is a practical instruction from God to show young people how they can have victory over any sin that holds them in their life. So that's something that's going to be something that can probably help you. But just for time's sake, we're going to go through this a bit quick because we only have a little bit of time. Now, how do you figure that the sanctuary helps people overcome sin? What makes you think that? Well, let me ask you this. How many people believe that that the sanctuary teaches us how to overcome sin? Is there anybody that believes that? Okay, so we got just a few hands. How many of you say, I have no idea? Okay, good bit. How many of you say, I am absolutely terrified of raising my hand? All right, so we find that we have a mixed multitude. Well, here's the thing. What Bible proof do we have that the sanctuary is the, is the, is the solution to this sin problem? How do you figure that? Anyone? And the reason why I want to do this with you is because how many of you have ever read a book called Great Controversy? How many of you know of a book called Great Controversy? Okay. I challenge any of you, you read page 366. You know what page 366 talks about? It talks about what was known as the child preachers. It says there were these child preachers that were actually living in the days of like William Miller and all these people. And they were actually going around and they were regular kids. I mean, they, they like to get on swings, play in sandboxes, you know, look, things that children just do today. They didn't play video games and none of that stuff. But nevertheless, they were outside recreation, having a natural fun time outside in nature. Now, She says in that book that these child preachers, when they were playing, they were just regular children. But then she says, but when the spirit of God would take possession of them, she says the tone of their voice and their manner would change. She says that they would begin to repeat the very words of John the Revelator in Revelation 14, saying, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. Now, guess how old these children were? She says six and eight years old. I don't think any of you are six years old. And what I'm trying to impress on your hearts is that if six and eight year olds can understand Bible prophecy and understand God's sanctuary message, there's no reason you shouldn't. None. If we can repeat the words of Jay-Z, Beyonce, and some of the latest rock and pop stars... If we know how to memorize their words and know how to repeat that stuff, you should be able to know how to memorize the words of God and repeat the words of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So therefore, I want to develop within you the ability to repeat the words of God and not what you think or what your favorite evangelists have said. This is something you want to learn now while you're young. Don't, Don't get caught up into a habit of repeating things that you really don't know. Well, where's that in the Bible? I have no idea. You don't want to get caught up into that habit. You want to do like Jesus did as a child, as a youth, as an adult. Speak the words of God. Be able to tell people, well, this is this is what the Bible says. And if somebody says, how do you figure the Bible says that? You say, oh, it's right here. And you can go ahead and show them. It's very powerful when you can do that. Very powerful. And you become a leader amongst your friends rather than a follower, which typically most young people are. Most of us are more followers than leaders. But God can change that. You let the Lord in your heart. You watch. He will turn you into a leader for him and you'll start leading people rather than following them. Go to the book of Exodus 25. In Exodus 25, we want to find out how do you know that the sanctuary provides the solution for sin? How, how do you even know that? I mean, where do you get that from? Where does that come from? Well, there's some simple ways we can look at it. You'll find that in Exodus 16, Exodus 15, the children of Israel come out of Egypt. They're delivered. Exodus 16, God changes their diet and now gives them manna. Exodus 17, they start to go to war, and every time they hold Moses' arms up, they're winning the battle. When his arms start to drop, they start losing. In Exodus 18, this is when Moses is instructed by his father-in-law to bring in church organizations, so to speak. You know, that's when Jethro said, hey, you got too many people you're serving, Moses. Go ahead and set some leaders over hundreds and fifties and so on. Exodus 19, God now provides or presents his covenant, his agreement. If you do this, I'll make you a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Exodus 20. What is that? Ten Commandments. Exodus 21 through 24, God introduces these things called judgments. It basically was practical instructions on how to live the Ten Commandments. That's all it was. 
But by this time, the children of Israel are still not getting it. I mean, with all this instruction, all these reforms and changes, they still were not really understanding God's will for their lives. So as a result of that, Exodus 25 comes in the picture. And then God says something amazing in verse 8. Now, after you read Exodus 25, verse 8, I'm going to ask you a question again. So this is real question and answer what we're doing. Who's going to read for us Exodus 25, verse 8? Who'd be so kind? Go ahead, sis. All right. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So after God does all this instruction, delivers in Exodus 15, changes diet in Exodus 16, teaches cooperation in Exodus 17, gives organization in Exodus 18, makes a covenant in Exodus 19, gives his law in Exodus 20, gives practical instructions on keeping his law, Exodus 21 through 24, God says it's still not registering in their brains. So therefore he says, all right. Make a sanctuary. It was like God was like, okay, this time I'm going to really get across to their hearts and their minds. Make a sanctuary. Now, according to the verse, what's the purpose of the sanctuary? That I may dwell among them. Question. If you never met me before, you didn't even know that I was Brother Lemon or anybody. Let's say I'm just an absolute, complete, total stranger. And let's say you're getting ready to go in your house. If I said, hey, can I come in? <laughs> Chances are you would say what? No. Okay. But what if I pushed it? What if I was like, you know, please, can I come in? Really, I'd, I'd like to come in just for a moment. What do you think eventually, after you've been saying no, but I'm not hearing your no, and let's say I just really wanted to just, like, come on, you know, really, it's not a problem. Don't worry, I'm not some crazy guy. I'm not going to touch you, bother you or anything. Just, I, I just want to know, can I please come in? I want to hang out with you for a while. It's like, after all of that, don't you think the natural question is, why, is he, why does he want to do this? Would that be one of the natural questions? Why do you want to spend time with me? Why do you want to do that? You know, and so on. Why do you think God wants you to dwell with him and him with you? There's something that God knows that he wants you to know. And that's the reason why I'm asking you this question. And when you get this, you'll get the sanctuary. God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. But the question is, why does dwelling, oh, by the way, the word among in the Hebrew means in. God says, I want to dwell in you. That means God says, I want to get intimate. I want to get like really close to you. So if you're walking down the road and somebody's walking close to you, you're kind of like, you know, what's wrong with this? Why is this person walking close to me? Right? But here goes God. God is saying, no, no, no. I want to be close to you. I don't want to be far away. I don't want to be distant. I want to be so close to you. Basically, it's like I'm inside of you. It's like we're one. Why do you think God wants to do that? Anybody, just take a thought. Guess. It's all right. In this room, we can guess. Don't make a mistake out there. Yes. Okay. 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 You got a verse for that? You always know my follow-up question. <laughs> All right. I would ha- I would, the verse I was going to go to, because I was going to go to where God comes out of the cloud and sees Paul, and what happens is he goes blind. Mm. He was sinning and in the face of sin. It would, it would, you, you would go so deep that you would have to qualify a lot of those points. So even though that might be a good point, you might want to save that and establish the point in other ways first, and then maybe circle back and bring up the Paul scenario. That would probably be a better way to approach it. All right, yes. Okay, okay. Point well taken. Um, let, me, let me help a little bit. Dwelling somewhere and abiding somewhere, same thing or different? If I say, welcome to my dwelling place, what am I talking about? My house. If I say, welcome to my humble abode, what am I talking about? My house. Talking about the same thing. So dwelling somewhere, abiding somewhere, same thing or different? Same thing, right? Okay. Is there anywhere in the Bible where God talks about abiding with him? Where? John 15. Let's go there now. Let's go. Let's go. John 15. 
Dwelling, abiding. Let's look at something. And, and you'll see this. this. This is beautiful, what God is showing us. We're still entertaining the question, why does God want to dwell in us? All right? All right. John 15, verse 4. What does it say? Someone read that for us. John 15, 4. Who will be so kind? Someone who hasn't read yet. I don't want to give other people a chance. Yes. Okay, now we're getting a little bit more of the picture. In Exodus 25, 8, God says, let them make me a sanctuary that what? I may dwell in or among them, right? But then in John 15, what's the, what's the additive that we see in John 15? The Bible says we're abiding in him too. So it's a twofold relationship. You ever have somebody hang around you, but you don't want to hang around them? That's not what God wants. So that's why I'm trying to clarify. I'm, I'm just keeping it simple. K-I-S-S, keep it simple, saints. It's, it's very simple. We're just trying to follow what the scripture is showing us. The great issue is that back in the days, mankind had what? Face-to-face communion with God. Along the lines, something bad happened. What happened? Sin happened. What, and what was the effect of sin? Separation, but be specific. It caused God to do what? Turn his face from us. So therefore, God now wants to once again have what with man? But in order for him to do that, he has to get rid of the thing that caused the separation, which was sin. So therefore, before sin, what was the condition of man? He was made in God's image and after his likeness. But then after man sinned, then what happened was man was now made in his image and his own Likeness. So for God to win man back, he must restore his image in man. Therefore, God says, I need a plan that's going to do this for me. And God gave us a plan which was called the sanctuary. The purpose of the sanctuary is that God may do what? Dwell among them. But in order for God to dwell among us, he says there's also an exchange. You must also what? Abide in me. You're following. Good class. Now. Yes, sir. I'm staying in this position because you're basically right. (laughs) There you go. Did you see that? All right. Everybody turn to first John three, six. Because that's the that's the point. The point is, is that God says, all right, I'm making a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Then God says, but in my dwelling among you. So who takes the initiative? Is it God or us? Who goes first, God or us? God, he comes to us. He says, make a sanctuary that I may come to you. But then when he comes to us, he says, I don't only want to dwell among you. I also want you to abide in me. That means you got to set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth anymore. Right. So now what's happening is. God's abiding in you. You're abiding in him. So there's this deep relationship going on. And then the end result of abiding in Christ. First John three, six. What does it say again? We sin not. So the purpose of the sanctuary is, as you said, to show mankind how as a result of the relationship between God and man becoming so intimately one with another that they will actually hate to do anything that is against God and his will. You know, you can actually love somebody like that. It's so deep. You know, back in the days, I used to be um, a dancer, a choreographer, and, uh, you know, used to do a lot of hip-hop, R&B videos, all this stuff, right? And, you know, in the entertainment industry, it is very typical that guys will become very manipulative to young ladies. You know, they try to talk them, sweet talk them, and get them to do all sorts of bad, sinful things. It's amazing. Typically in the entertainment industry, just about everybody's doing this stuff. You know, everybody is just living these adulterous lifestyles. When I was in the world, I was participating in these wicked acts as well. But... When I gave my heart to Jesus, 
The first thing I did was I, st I left the entertainment industry. And when I left the entertainment industry, I started doing Bible studies and telling everybody about all these things I'm learning because I was loving it. And then I told my best friend, who was also my dancing partner. So I said, hey, Damien, I said, man, you got to check this out. This is incredible what I'm learning. You know, study this. So he studied and then he got baptized. He was like, I'm in. So he got baptized. So now me and him were both dancing for the devil. And now we're living for Jesus. And as we went about sharing God's truth, I would have these Bible studies at my house. And what I did was at the Bible study, I would tell him, I said, bring some people by the house and I'll, we'll study with them. We'll help them see the message. Well, one day he called me up from college and he says, hey, I met this young lady. I'm bringing her to the study. And he brought her to the study. Her name was Alexandra. And little did I know that Alexandra would become my wife. So I met my wife at a Bible study. Now, when I realized that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, you know, I asked her hand in marriage and, you know, we, we were married. Something strange took place. I would see just all sorts of women, but there was no desire to be with any of them. In other words, I was completely satisfied and I was completely happy with this one treasure that God allowed me to have in my life. As a result of loving my wife, it removed any of the desire to do anything that was adulterous, anything that was sinful. In other words, God allowed me to see that through the marriage union, you can actually love the other party so much that you no longer want to do anything that would ever hurt them. And your whole desire is to do everything that pleases them. God says, I have espoused you to myself. God says, I'm the husband and you're the bride. And it is through the marriage relationship that Jesus is trying to build relationship with you. In him building relationship with you, it gets to a point that the relationship becomes so sweet that you actually would never want to do anything to hurt him. And your greatest desires in life is to please him. You want to know a guy who did that? Go to Hebrews 11. Let me show you a guy who did that. And I want, I want you to know the end result of this guy's life, because I'm going to tell you the truth. I want his end result. <laughs> I think you do, too. Look at what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11. And I want you to see what the Bible tells us about a gentleman who loved God so much that he was consumed with pleasing him. And I want you to see what the end result of his life was in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Let's notice what the Bible says as we consider verse 5. Who would read that for us? Hebrews 11, verse 5. Go ahead, sis. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. But before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Amen. So now, what does the Bible say about Enoch's life? It says what? He pleased God. So we know clearly that according to the Bible... Enoch's life was a life where he was consumed with doing what to God? Pleasing him. But did you notice the end result of his life? What's the end result of Enoch's life? He didn't die. God actually says, you know, Enoch, it's almost like God and Enoch was taking a walk together, you know? And as they're taking a walk together and they're just walking, 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 and they're just loving on each other. God is telling Enoch how much he loves him. Enoch is telling God how much he loves him. And they're just loving one another and they're basking in all of this wonderful love one toward another. And it's almost like you can imagine God walking with Enoch and Enoch walking with God that eventually God and Enoch just look back and they said, wow, you know, we've been walking so far and so caught up into one another that your home is so far away. And it looks like based on our conversation and our walking together, you're more closer to my home. And therefore, God says, Enoch, why don't you just come home and stay with me? And then Enoch stays home with God. That's how close they were. Do you know that's exactly what God is trying to do with you? God says, I want to get so close to you that it doesn't even make sense to be apart anymore. That he says, I might as well just bring you home with me because there's nothing about your life that causes me to have to keep us separated anymore. I guarantee you when you begin to plead with God, Father, put a desire in my heart that all I want to do is please you. That when I live in my life, I'll, I'll, I won't just avoid bad things. There's bad music. No question about that. You got to stay away from that stuff. It'll mess your head up. There's bad food. There's things that if you eat it, it'll literally affect your brain. I, I was wrestling. I almost wanted to deviate from the sanctuary and talk about the health message because I, I love the health message so much. But, you know, there's food 
that we can eat that will literally mess with your head and cause you to be in a state of mind that you really can't understand the words of God. And Jesus is not attractive to you anymore. Christianity is not attractive. You want to turn away from all of it. And it's based on a lot of stuff we put inside of our bodies that we call food that heaven calls garbage. But in life is not just about avoiding things, but it's also about doing things that please God. It's about doing things that make him happy, doing things that put a smile on his face. And the sanctuary message was designed to teach this. And this is why if we can get this, you'll find that it'll help you along the way in a lot of life's battles. So I want you to think about this. We're looking at the sanctuary, right? Here we have the little picture of the sanctuary. And it would have the courtyard. And then right inside of this curtain area, what's that called? The holy place. Holy place. And then back here was what? Beautiful. Most holy place. Very good. Now, the thing that's very interesting is that you remember Jesus was having a dialogue with uh, the disciples and he talked about him going to the father and the disciples wanted to know, how shall I find the way? Remember that? Well, you remember that the Bible says in Psalm 77 and verse 13, thy what, O God? Thy way, O God, is where? In the sanctuary. Now, who is the way? Jesus is the way. I am the way, Jesus said. So if you want to get a connection with Jesus, where do you have to go? The sanctuary. But is the sanctuary here on this earth? No, there's a sanctuary now where? In heaven. So therefore, we have to find out, well, how do I get there? I wish it was that easy. There's a lot of people that pray in Pentecostal churches and they still haven't found their way in the sanctuary. There's a lot of people that's praying in Roman Catholic churches haven't found their way in the sanctuary yet. A lot of people praying in non-denominational churches, people praying in mosques where the Muslims meet, people praying in synagogues where a lot of our Jewish friends meet. They're all praying, but somehow they're not finding their way in there. So I'd love to say that prayer is enough, but I'd be lying to you. Prayer is not enough. Prayer is needed. Prayer is, prayer is absolutely essential, but it's not enough by itself. Even Ellen White says, if all you do is pray, then after a while, you'll stop praying. <laughs> you read that in Steps of Christ, Privilege of Prayer. So, you know, we, we got to get to a point that we understand, well, Lord, I, all right, I need to know how to get there. So therefore, when we think about the sanctuary now, where is Jesus right now? He's in the most holy place. So Christ is in the most holy place between the angels and he's standing before the ark of God. And right now, Christ wants to do a very important work. He doesn't want to just simply forgive your sins. He doesn't simply want to just cover your sins, but he wants to completely do what? Blot them out. I want you to think about this with me. Um, there are three things in the Bible. One is called courtyard. The other one's called holy place. And the other one is called the most holy place. Now, the thing that's interesting is that in all of these places, blood is applied. There's blood in the courtyard. There's blood in the holy place. And there's blood in the most holy place. Now, what do you think is significant about blood? Yes. Okay, now, my sister quoted Hebrews 9, 22. So you want to write that down if you're a note taker. In Hebrews 9, 22, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. So the first reason we know that blood had to be there was so that man could be what? That he could be forgiven of his sins or cleansed from his sins. Is there anything else about blood that's significant? Ha, very good. Where do we find that? <laughs> he knew I was coming. What he said there was that he says the life is in the blood. The life current is in the blood. Now, scientifically, we know that's true. That's why if you go to a hospital, if you want to know what's wrong with you, what's the first thing they have to do? <laughs> got to take that blood. If you're scared to death, oh, no, I want to know if I have ABC disease. They got to take the blood. <laughs> because, you know, disease flows through blood. So if the people want to know what's wrong with you, they're going to go ahead and take some blood. If, they want to know, if you want to know how healthy you are, how good, how are my white blood cells doing? Are they growing strong and vibrant? Got to take blood. So no matter what, blood is needed to tell if you're healthy or weak. Now, look at Leviticus 17.11. Let's go there. For time's sake. Leviticus 17.11. I don't have a watch or a clock in front of me. That's usually dangerous. Um, what, what, how much time do we have? Okay, so in Leviticus 17 and verse 11, you know, look at what the Bible says here. The Bible talks about 
something as it relates to the blood. What does it say? You can go ahead and read it since you were looking for it. All right. So the life of the flesh is in the blood, right? So therefore, when a man's sins are forgiven, let's go to Romans 4, 7. Now that we understand that the life of the flesh is in the blood, go to Romans 4, 7, and let's see what Romans 4, 7 says. One of the most exciting images is when you see young people turning their Bibles. I tell you, y'all look good. Go there, Romans 4 and verse 7. Watch this. Romans 4, 7. Now that we understand the life is in the blood. Now look at what the Bible says in Romans 4 and verse 7. Who can read that one for us? Romans 4 and verse 7. Go ahead. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. What do you think their sins are covered with? Blood. Blood. And when their sins are covered with blood, what's in the blood? Life. So therefore we are covered with his life. There's a beautiful hymn called Covered with His Life, Whiter Than Snow. It is the life of Christ that when we confess our sins and we ask him, Lord, please forgive me. I messed up today. I said something wrong. I did something wrong, whatever it may be. We learn now that when I confess my sins, that blood that was throughout the sanctuary, outer court, holy place, most holy place, that blood which encases the life of Jesus is strong enough to forgive me of my sins, but also is strong enough to do something else. Not just to cleanse also, but there's something else. What's in the blood? Life. Go to Galatians 2.20. Let's go to Galatians 2.20. Let's, let, let's find out something else that happens through the life of Christ. Galatians 2 and verse 20. Powerful verse. In Galatians 2.20, what does it say? Who could read that for us? Who'd be so kind as to read that for us? Go ahead. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. So the life that we now live, who's living out that life within us now? Christ is. So therefore, what kind of life did Christ live? He lived a perfect life. So can you be? Can you be? She's like. Can you be perfect? Do you think you can be? Do you think you can live a perfect, a, a perfect life in humanity like Jesus lived on this earth? Do you think you can do that? Say again. That's right. But with Christ's blood covering my life and empowering my life. Can I live a perfectly obedient, pleasing life to God just like Jesus did? Yes? Is there anybody that doesn't believe that? All right, yes. 1 John 4, 17. Would you be so kind to read that for us, please? How clear is that? That's clear, right? That's clear. So therefore, the sanctuary is covered with the life of Christ. When you study the sanctuary, you have to see Jesus in it. In the outer court, you see him as the lamb that dies. In the holy place, you see him as the priest that lives. In the most holy place, you see him as, as judge, but also as your advocate who works on your side. So while there is a broken law in that most holy place, there's also a mercy seat in that most holy place. And it's because of Christ and what he did for us that he gives us mercy and he enables us. Don't ever forget the purpose of grace. Grace is number one, to show mercy. That's why when you read Genesis 19, 19, the Bible actually equates grace to mercy. Grace is God's mercy towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ was still willing to die for us. But did you know that grace is also power? 
How many of you knew that? All right, you raised your hand, so where do you go? How do you know that grace is also power? How do you know that grace is also power? Yes, sir. All right. So therefore, grace and apostleship for obedience. That's an empowering statement, isn't it? So therefore, what are we obeying? His law. So is there anywhere in the Bible that we learn that God's grace helps us know or empowers us to keep his law? Because, you know, a lot of your friends whom you're going to share Jesus with, you know, that's one of the things that either they're going to tell you or their parents are going to tell them to tell you or their pastors are going to tell them to tell you. Is to say we don't need the law anymore because we have grace. Yes. Mm, beautiful text. Thank you very much for that. Do we have a verse though that shows us that grace is empowering us to keep God's law? Yes. Excellent verse. Now, you want to write that one down. I'm serious. Write that one down. Commit that thing to memory. Do whatever you can, because Titus 2, 11 and 12 shuts down this argument about God's grace keeps us from the law or God's grace replaces my need to keep the law. This text of scripture shuts down that argument. Listen very carefully to this. Go ahead. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Now, grace teaches us to live how? Soberly and what else? Righteously. Did we hear anything about the law so far? Did we? Where? Yeah. Where did you hear about the law? Somebody may say, well, where's the law? I don't hear the law in there. I don't hear anything about God's commandments. Why are you trying to trick me with the Bible? How do you figure that? That sounds like man-made religion. No, 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 no. We're not buying that. Anybody can come up with a cool idea. Where in the Bible do we find that righteousness deals with God's commandments or his law? Where do we find that? Y'all find anything out here, you guys? You helping us out? Help us out. Where do we find in the Bible that righteousness has anything to do with God's law and God's commandments? You You know how many people don't see the connection with that? They'll literally look at you funny. They'll be like, what are you talking about? Righteousness has nothing to do. Righteousness is just right doing. That's what a lot of people will tell you. So how do you deal with that? And I would never ask you a question unless I already know it's there. So it's there. Yes. Somebody says, I think his good pleasure is to feed the homeless. (laughs) You get the point, right? That's what they're going to do. I'm telling you, that's what they're going to do. Can I tell you what chapter I think (laughs) (laughs) Sure you can. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the correct book and is the correct division. All we need is the verse. Psalm 119. Not 142. Because that, Psalms 119, 142 does not connect to Titus 2, 11 and 12. It says that the law is true. Right. It is Psalm 119. You just need the verse. Come on, folks. Hunt! Swords in hands. Go! Psalms 119, 11. I've hit that word in my heart that I might not say it against thee. Right? Mm-mm. Not it. Say again. 67? Six and seven. Six and seven? Psalm 119, six and seven? What does it say in Psalm 119, six and seven? Then I would not be ashamed of the 
Now, are you in Psalm 19 or Psalm 119? 119. Okay, and what does it say in verse 7? Not it. 144? What does it say in 144? That still doesn't connect to the commandments. It's in Psalm 1. I mean, that's like a huge clue, ladies and gentlemen. It's it. Thank you. Look at verse 172. What does it say in Psalm 119, 172? It says what? My tongue shall speak of your word for all your commandments are righteousness. So grace teaches us to live righteously. What is righteousness? All God's commandments. So does God's grace teach us to actually obey the law of God? Yes, it teaches us to obey the commandments of God. That absolutely contradicts modern Christian thought today about the law and grace. The law is in here. Mercy seat is here. Go to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Where is it? Psalms 87. Hold on. Maybe Psalms 87. I'm allowed to have a brain freeze. I know, right? That's bad. It's on camera, too. I can't remember. Anyhow. I was going to show about um, how law, mercy, and truth have kissed each other. Isn't that, Psalm? I thought it was Psalm 67, but I guess I was wrong. Yeah, mercy and truth, because grace, mercy, law, truth, mercy and truth have kissed each other. And then when you look at law here, mercy seat here, when you kiss, you're connected. You know what I'm saying? So you just see mercy and truth, law and grace connected in the most holy place. Powerful. God wants us to understand that it is in the sanctuary that he wants to show man how he can have total, complete victory over sin. And it is through the courtyard, through the holy place, and through the most holy place that he shows us step by step. Did you find it for me, Sister Scholar? Psalms 85, verse 10. Thank you. Psalms 85, 10. You help me, I help you. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Mano y mano. Thank you. And so you find that God says, I've brought these two together so that I can show man how he can overcome and let me in their lives. Now, here's going to be the solemn lesson that I'm going to leave with you on this point here, because this is very, very key. How many of you ever studied the sanctuary before? Good. Can I be honest with you? One of the challenges I believe is taking place. A lot of people can see Jesus in the sanctuary, right? Here's the question. Where are you in the sanctuary? And how do you show that? That needs to be taught more. We need to start studying. If I could give you a homework assignment. I did a youth group where, uh, boy, it was amazing. I was invited to a school to do a week of prayer. I thought for some reason it was in the evening. So therefore, I'm like, all right, we're going to do a week of prayer at a school. And I went there. Seventh Avenue School, of course. And I went there, and I was going to go speak to all these adults, I thought, for a week of prayer at the school. So I just happened to call the day before. I, pre- I prepared these deep messages, and I'm just like, man, we're going, to, we're going to get into the Word, you know, and everything else. And the next thing, I just happened to call the facilitator, and I said, hey, I uh, just had some questions about the week of prayer that begins tomorrow night. They said, oh, no, it's not tomorrow night. It's tomorrow morning. I said, tomorrow morning? I said, isn't that during school time? She said, yeah. She says, the week of prayer is with children. And I was like, wait a minute, how old are these kids? And then she said, you'll be dealing with some three-year-olds, some (laughs) four-year-olds. And I'm just like, and I'm looking at what I prepared, and I'm like, no way. (laughs) This is not going to work. So I am pleading with God. I was like, no problem. Okay, we'll be all set. Got off the phone, and I'm like, Lord, what can I give them in just one night's preparation? God said, give them the sanctuary. 
And that week of prayer was so powerful. Literally, by the Friday when we finished, parents came to the school and they said, where is the teacher who has been doing this week of prayer? And they came and they, they pointed over at me. They, I guess they thought I was in trouble. And the parents are just looking. They're like, he's over there. And then they come, the parents come to me and I just said, yes, how can I help you? They said, listen, I have never heard my children explain the gospel so well as a result. In other words, the sanctuary is so simple that the most youthful minds can understand it as it relates to this. Now, you know what our focus was that week of prayer? Jesus and me in the sanctuary. So in other words, what we did was we said, here goes Jesus in the sanctuary. But now the next question is, where am I in the sanctuary? Now, how many phases were there to the sanctuary? What were the three called? Courtyard, step one. What was the next step? Holy place, what's the next step? Most holy place. Now, if you get through all three steps, what do you have? You have what? What's the purpose of the sanctuary? All right, so the purpose, the purpose of the sanctuary is that God may dwell in us, and as a result of God dwelling in us and us in him, it creates a union, one with another, that it gets us to a point that we'll restore to the image of God as a result of victory over sin, because that's what broke, Right? Here's the thing. That means that Jesus had a work to do in the outer court. Do you have a work to do? Yes. Jesus had a work to do in the holy place. Do you have a work to do? Jesus. Actually, you do, believe it or not. Let me give you a hint. What's in the holy place? Showbread. What does the showbread represent? Word of God. Are we supposed to study the word of God? Yes. Right? You get it? So I need to have an experience in this. So it's not just my priest doing his job. I need to play my part, cooperating with him. What do the altar of incense represent? Say that again. What, what does the altar of incense represent? Huh? Okay, now you sound confused. Hey, don't let my face intimidate you. If I'm like, what? You know, you should still be able to say prayer. <laughs> prayer. Because you know what you, listen, if you know what you believe, it doesn't matter what kind of face somebody makes at you. I know what I believe. So you can look at me all you want. Prayer. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> prayer. So what does the altar of incense represent? Prayer. Are you sure? Yes. You sure? Yes. You sure? Yes. Go to Revelation Chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. Now, Revelation, what does the the incense represent in the sanctuary? Prayer. Prayer. Are you sure? You're sure? Revelation 8. Verse 4. What does it say in Revelation 8, 4? And the smoke of the incense which came what? With the prayers of the saints. Oh. If the incense is prayer, how could it say the incense with the prayers of the saints? There's got to be a missing ingredient in here, and there is. That's your homework. I'm not telling you. Ah, man, I'm not telling you. You know, you got to study, brother. (laughs) Now, I'm here until Sabbath. If you don't find it by Sabbath, any of you look me out, and then I'll tell you. But I want to at least give you about 24 hours to look for it yourself. It's fun when you find out yourself. It's powerful when you can say, I know what it means. It's really nice. (laughs) It's nice when you can do that. All right. So we find that. Can you have an experience in the holy place? Yeah. You see that? So therefore, there's an experience in the outer court. 
There's an experience in the holy place. There's an experience in the most holy place. And that experience in the most holy place is the deep, deep, deep experience. All of it is designed to create an indissoluble communion between you and God. Do you know one of the most powerful quotations I have ever read in the spirit of prophecy? That's why I'm confused when people try to say the sanctuary is a false doctrine, the sanctuary is this, that. I'm amazed because I'm like, first of all, where do you get your evidence from? And then secondly, it's like, how could you fight a message this sweet, a message this beautiful? God's plan to bring restoration to mankind. I read a quote from Ellen White that had to be the most amazing quote I've ever read and the most simple quote dealing with this victory over sin thing. It's found in Desire of Ages, page 668. Boy, I got to tell you, you got to read that thing. You know what it says in Desire of Ages, page 668? It tells us, this one is so important, I want to... I want to quote it verbatim. Let me just go ahead and say it. Ready? It says, when we know God, as it is our privilege to know him. Hey, you guys know it. Good. You want to do it? Oh, man. Yeah, man, I I love OHA. I love OHA. I was there. Not as a student, but I came there to visit with many of you, and it was a blessing. When we know God, as it is our privilege to know him, it says our lives will be a life of continual obedience. What's our issue right now? Our obedience is not continual. One day, praise the Lord, I didn't do it. And then tomorrow, oh, Lord, forgive me, I did it. Right? That's our life right now, many of us. But it says, when we know God as it is our privilege to know him, it says our lives will be a life of continual obedience. Watch this. It says, through an appreciation of God's character and through, what is it? Communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. That's what the sanctuary was designed to teach us. It was supposed to not just teach you about Jesus, but to teach you about you. Jesus and me in the sanctuary. When you see Jesus and me in the sanctuary, you're seeing relationship in the courtyard, relationship in the holy place, relationship in the most holy place. And when the work is finished and sins are blotted out, relationship for eternity. Now I understand why Ellen White says in volume 581, she says... All who assume the ornaments of the sanctuary but were not clothed in Christ's righteousness will appear in the shame of their nakedness. It is possible to understand the sanctuary and only understand it from its ornamental structure standpoint. This means this. This means that. That means this. This means that. And we understand the ornaments, but we miss the experience. Christ says, that's not what I want for you. Jesus says, I want you to get the experience. And the only way you can get it is you got to see Jesus and me. In the sanctuary. You can't just see Christ in the sanctuary. You can't just see Jesus and and the plan of salvation only. You got to see where am I in this picture? Because once you see that, it makes it practical. And I've learned that's what young people like. Young people like, how can this theory of the gospel be made practical in my life? And I'm telling you, it's only because of time. Otherwise, I would show you, you in the courtyard, you in that holy place, you in that most holy place. And I'm telling you, it gets as practical as you can bring it. And when you understand that, you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing right now. You become children of the sanctuary. I mean, you will really understand this sanctuary message. And that's why we're told this. I'm going to bring this to a close here. This is why we're told. You remember that William Miller and everybody, they started the priest of 2300 days of Daniel 814. Look carefully at this quote. The scripture, which above all others had been both the foundation and central pillar of the what faith? Is that Seventh-day Adventist? Nope. It's not. This is the Advent faith. You're not Adventist. You're Seventh-day Adventist. This is, this is Ellen White recounting the experiences of the Millerites. 
So they were called the Advent faith because they were looking for the second Advent. It says, The scripture which above all others had been both the foundation and central pillar of the Advent faith was the declaration unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. These had been familiar words to all believers in the Lord's soon coming. So that was it. Daniel 8.14, right? But look at this quote carefully. The what? Correct understanding of the ministration in the where? Heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. Who's that talking about? Seventh-day Adventists. So in other words, if there was a correct understanding, there also must have been what? An incorrect. So this group here, they had an incorrect understanding. The scripture was right, but their understanding was wrong. However, the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist church is the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary. That's the foundation. That's why, I'm going to be honest with you, none of you, none of you, none of you should be a Seventh-day Adventist and not know the correct understanding of the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Once you understand the earthly and you understand what was being accomplished in the earthly, then you will be able to appreciate what Jesus is doing right now in the heavenly sanctuary. If I could say anything to you as we close on this point, I would say this. Don't just see Jesus in the sanctuary. See him clear as day, but see yourself. What am I supposed to be doing? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.